0: Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to No Breakfast and the Class. Uh, today is, of course, the day of Asara Tevet, so there's not going to be any breakfast. Today is a day of uh, of repentance, a day of Teshuvah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what the message, what the concept of Asara Tevet is, and what exactly is it that we are fasting for, what are we trying to achieve. Now, the origin of this fast is not in the gemara it's not in the zohar it's not it's a pasuk in the navi it's very very clear the navi tells us that these fourth somot somarevi the fourth fast the fifth fast the seventh fast and the 10th fast what does that mean do we fast 10 times no tzoma rivi'i is the fourth month so if you count in the jewish calendar the first month is what The first month is Nisan. So you have Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz. The first fast is the 17th day of Tammuz. What's the fifth fast? The fifth fast is the fifth month, which is the month of Av. Shabbat Av. The seventh fast is the fast of the seventh month. Which month is the seventh month, like we see in the Torah? u That's the month of Tishrei. Which fast do we have in the month of Tishrei? Soamgidalia. Soamgidalia. And which fast do we have in the tenth month? The tenth month is the month of Tibet. The tenth month, the tenth fast is the fast of Tibet, which is the tenth month in the Jewish calendar. So each one of these fasts, the Navi tells us, is going to be, in the future, is going to be, is going to be turned from days of sadness and days of fasting into days of joy, to days of celebration, into holidays. But let's review what did these four fasts what are they and how did they work chronologically in, uh, from a historical perspective? So, <clears throat> so normally, the, it would go in order fourth, fifth, seventh, tenth, but actually, it's the opposite. So, let's take a look. The fourth fast, as we said, is Shiva'a Sabbat Tammuz. Shiva'a Sabbat Tammuz commemorates the day that the Beit HaMikdash, the walls, excuse me, of Jerusalem, were breached. That, before they were breached, something else happened. That's this fast. The first fast, actually, chronologically, is the fast of Aserah B'tevet. It's the time when Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city of Jerusalem and he laid siege to the city. Now, in ancient warfare, the way that they fought wars, today you, you're sending missiles, you know, nuclear warfare could take a matter of minutes. But back in the day, you had to actually kill with a sword. You had to kill all your enemies. You had to spend the time, sorry, Which this one, neither. It's Babylonian. precedes it. The Romans and the Greeks are the story of the Second Temple era. Okay, we're talking about now the First Temple era. So the year three 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 six. Okay, so if as an example, the the uh, Bet is destroyed. The Second beta Hamidash is destroyed. In the year 70 CE, so roughly, you know, 1900 and uh, almost 50 years ago, that's where we are from now to the destruction of the second temple. If you count backwards, the temples were 410 and 420 years respectively with a 70-year break in between. So you're talking about 830 years of temple time, 70 years of break in between, which is the story of Purim time, okay? So the, the saga of the temples... Including the destruction of the first. Till the second destruction is a saga of almost a thousand years. Okay? People don't often understand the the stretch of history. That thousand year period ends roughly around the year 70. So roughly in the time when we begin counting the modern or secular calendar, okay, which coincides with the with the death of Yeshu. all right? So that their calendar, if you want to understand based on the way we count right now, we're in the non-Jewish year 2020, go back to the beginning to roughly 0, that's when the second temple is destroyed. Go back a 1000 years from that, that's when the first temple is built. So now you have a little bit of the historical context of what we're talking about. So, if you want to understand when a sarab tevet happens, that's when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who takes over almost all of the civilized world, again, I want to give you the context. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the man who destroys the first temple. Correct? He's the one who drives the Jews into the first exile, into the exile of Babel. Babel is modern-day Iraq. So if you want to know where the first Jews left Israel, where did they go? The first Jews are Babylonian Jews. So the Iraqi Jews are uh, literally they have the they have history, they have historical precedent over anyone, Ashkenazim, Sephardim. The first Jews went, but all the Jews went there. So there was no Ashkenaz. So it's really a little bit of a fallacy, okay? From Babel, what happened after the Babylonian Empire rose to power? It was then defeated by the Persian Empire. So we moved from Iraq to Iran. The battle between Iraq and Iran that goes on till this day, you see it was seeded all the way back then. And the king Achashverosh in the story of Purim becomes the king over the whole world. Why? Because he defeats. First of all, he defeats. But second of all, he also marries the granddaughter of Vashti, who was the the granddaughter of of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, the daughter of of Belshazzar. So, now we again, we understand this idea. So the first story, the beginning of the end, if you will, is Asara tevet. It's when Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he sees these Jews, he wants to conquer the city, what's the first move? You surround the city with troops. No one can get into the city and no one can get out. What is he doing? He's basically starving the people of the city the fighters get weak until eventually you can literally break down the wall, walk in, you don't even have to fight a battle. The battle is in maintaining the integrity of the siege. So you'd have the soldiers coming out, realizing what was happening, and they would fight to break through the ranks of the siege to go and bring food back into the city to be able to uh, help the people survive. So what most people, don't understand this, we kind of think oh that's like a non that's like not such an important one then you have shiva tamuz. okay that's more important then you have tshabab that's the most important i'd like to give an example for understanding how this how this works i want you to imagine for a minute a person who's running a, a, a brand a clothing brand okay that's what they do they sell shmatas. they have a name the name is the uh, you know uh, kids of New York City. That's the name of their brand. I hope that's nobody's name brand. No one's going to get angry at me. They have a, this is their brand, Kids of New York City. The first thing that happens, uh, one day the guy walks into work, everyone's very nervous. What's the matter? They say, unfortunately, there's someone else who's taking a a very similar brand. They, they didn't write Kids of New York City, they wrote Kids of New York. Yet, yeah, did you call the patent lawyer? Called the patent lawyer. Unfortunately, now he's selling Kids of New York. He doesn't have to pay for advertising. He doesn't have any stores. He knows he's gotta pay brand responsibility, all these types of things. He sell, he's undercutting us to all of our people. That's very sad. The beginning of the end is that moment. He just doesn't know it yet. Okay, slowly the sales start diminishing. The guy decides, you know what we're going to do? Instead, you know, we'll start coming up with some new plans to create clothing that they can't copy. they mimicked all of our other goods. What are we going to do? Then finally he realizes that actually somebody has broken through into the walls of the company. They're, they're copying all the brands, all the goods, all the, and they come out two days before you. They come out to market with all the same clothes as you for cheaper price. They go to all the people, all all your competitors, excuse me, all of your distributors. Next thing you know, you're trying to sell the goods, they're telling you, why would I buy yours? Literally, same exact item, the other person. The guy can't believe it. But he still has his brand name, he still has his what's it called, until eventually what happens? The guy poaches your C-suite, he's got your people, and now the people who you do business with, who make the phone calls to your people, the, the, the phone call doesn't even get through to you anymore. That is an exact mashal for what happened to the Jewish people. The first story is Asara they there's siege there, there's no more money coming in, there's no more goods coming into the city. But it's not over yet, there's still things to do, the people still have methods, we can still fight the war. The second stage is, on Shiva Asara Tammuz, two years later, so it's two, roughly two and a half years, because if you think about it, the siege is laid at what month? The tenth month, we just said, Asara Tevet. Two years later would be Asrah B'Tevet again, but the walls are not yet breached. It goes all the way from the 10th month back to, as we said, the 4th month. So that's another six months. So exactly two and one half years later, after the beginning of the siege in the year 3338, that's when they punch through the wall. They walk in the city, and the people are literally falling off their feet. There's been no food in Jerusalem coming in, no water coming in for two and a half years. So any food, any vegetation, it starts where they clean out the stores. There's nothing on the shelves. Next, after that, the people are going into the field, taking the storehouses. After that, they wipe out all the canned goods, everything that's put away, the shimurim, till eventually they start eating the grass, they start eating animal food. All the descriptions that we read about on Tisha B'Av, they don't happen on Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av. is the day that it's over. It's the day that they break through, they do everything, they burn the Beit HaMikdash. But at that stage, the war was already over. The story had already been done. The siege and the hunger, which we read about in Echah, where the Navi talks about mothers, unfortunately, uh, taking their children who passed away from hunger and eating the kids themselves. I mean, it's, it's not to be believed. Hiding the children, says the Navi, hiding the children that they were cooking and eating so they wouldn't have to share it with anyone who would smell uh, the smell of the meat that was being cooked. They were starving to death. It's, It's beyond anything you can imagine. The Gemara talks about people that would be walking through the streets, they would be picking through the dung of animals for grain that had not been fully digested by the body of the animal. I mean, this is... What we're talking about. So on Asarav the siege begins. Shiva Asarav Tamuz, the walls broken into. Tisha Av is the destruction of the temple. Where is the story of Tzom Gedaliah? In the aftermath of the destruction, there's still some Jews living in Jerusalem. So there's still, it's not done. The the Desolation is not complete, if you will, because there's still Jews living in the homeland. Maybe they can rebuild. Maybe slowly they can build something new. They had permission to live there. Um, but in that story, the person who was put in charge, which is Gedaliah ben Achikam, is actually murdered by rebels, and uh, and thus ends the Jewish presence in Eretz Israel as the rest of the Jews are driven are driven into exile in the first Beit Hamikdash. So now we have a little bit of a historical context. But my friends, the lesson over here is very interesting because imagine this fellow. The first day becomes a day, he says, in his company. Today is a day, you know, a very sad day. All of our stuff has been copied. You know, and we have no more income coming into the company. How long can a company operate without money coming in? He, de- he declares it a sad day in the company. Today no no nobody can go put anything on the expense on the expense account in the restaurant. But then when things get worse and he declares another fast day, wouldn't you assume that the second fast day, which was commemorating a greater level of destruction or devastation, it would overrule the first. You'd wipe out the first one and you'd celebrate this you'd commemorate the second one. Not celebrate, obviously. You then get to Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av. is the culmination of those three dates. You then wipe out the first one. Correct? But Judaism doesn't see it like that. Because although in the world, uh, people look at the final product, people look at the final blow, and they see that as the tragedy, Judaism does not look at it that way. <laughs> a chacham is a person. Chacham enav beroshot. His eyes are in his head. What does that mean his eyes are in his head? So I want to give you an example as to what this means. Imagine as an example, you have a, a castle. and in the castle they have a big turret, a watchtower, where someone can watch and see if there are enemies that are coming. That way, you're prepared, you have your archers, you have your snipers, get up there and protect uh, and protect the city, protect the castle. Could you imagine if instead of putting the watchtower very high, you put the watchtower in the middle of the wall? Obviously, you can only see someone from a shorter distance away. How about if you put the watchtower, you know, the window, you put it on the floor? The guy's only going to see ants. Right? That's not a watchtower, that's an exterminator window. Okay? This idea of Chacham Enav B'Roshor means a person whose eyes are in his head isn't everyone's eyes in their head. Yes, but not everyone acts that way. Some people's eyes are in their stomach. Can I give you an example of what that means? You ever go food shopping on a fast day? Bad, bad idea. You're buying everything. Not what you need. Everything. Because you're hungry. What are you? Who's shopping? Your, your eyes? Your head? Or your stomach? Your stomach is shopping. You have people who make decisions when they're dating. Unfortunately, their eyes are not in their head. Their eyes are in their mid-region. They're thinking, you know, with their desire. Chacham, a wise person, enav biroshor, his eyes and his head, attached to his brain. To think that the story of Tisha B'Av begins on Tisha B'Av is ridiculous. You know, the guys come in on the final day and they shut down your company. They start taking the chairs and the desks and the computers and they're selling them. Could you imagine hating the guy who's selling, the, b- the bondsman who's taking the desks? This guy's just collecting the debt that began on Aser <laughs> Chacham understands the tragedy is not here, the tragedy is way over there. What happened two and a half years ago, when we didn't do teshuvah then, when we didn't figure out how to fix our ways then. So, therefore, at each stage of the devastation, of the destruction, there's another layer of mourning because it could have been stopped. And we're mourning the fact that at that stage, if we would have woken up, it would have ended with a Sarabit, and it just would have been a siege that we eventually got through and nothing happened. And then they just would have got through the wall, but you know what? But we fought back and nothing happened. And then, etc., etc. So that's the relevance and importance of commemorating these days. So I'd like to ask just one question, you know, much of Judaism and the teachings of Judaism are symbolic. They help us understand things on a relatable level, on a metaphoric level. So if you're thinking about this idea of Nebuchadnezzar surrounding the city of Yerushalayim, of cutting off its resources, what does that look like in the Jewish story of 2021? What are the tragedies, what are the things that stop us from getting our lifeblood as a Jewish nation? What are they in our experience? What are the things that stop Jews from being, living, breathing, exciting, Ju- excited Judaism? What, what are those things? The, in effect, the destruction of Aserah B'tevet is that. And therefore the teshuvah of Asara tevet and the fixing of Asara tevet is an analysis of what that is in a person's personal life. I shared yesterday an idea that I'd like to share with you today and I'll close with that. You know, if you read in the Torah the final moments of Yaakov Avinu's passing, the Pasuk tells us, Yaakov says to his sons, Gather round, and I will tell you that which will occur in the end of days. He's about to give them the prophecy of what's going to happen before the coming of the Mashiach. And then he starts telling them, Reuven, you're my firstborn son. You made this mistake. You were impetuous. Shimon Levi, uh, you know, you guys, you lose your temper. Your your temper is capable of bringing you know bringing us to acts of murder. Levi, you know, sorry, Yehuda, Yuducha Achecha, your brothers—they should be subservient to you. One second. Are we talking about a prophecy of the time of Mashiach, <coughs> or are we talking about Yaakov Avinu giving his kids a dressing down? We're we talking about Yaakov Avinu giving a berachah to his children. Now, if you look at the end of the berachot, what does it say in the end of the berachot? These are the children of Israel. All of these are the children of Israel of, of, uh, of the Jewish people, and this is the blessing that he gave them, each person according to their blessing. So again, we have an inherent contradiction in the bookends. On one side of the blessing, what does Yaakov say, I'm about to do? I'm about to tell you what's going to happen at the end of days. What happens on the other side of the blessing? Yaakov says, what did he just do? What does the Torah say? He just blessed his children. Well, which was it? Is it a prophecy? Or is it a blessing? On a simple level, our rabbis tell us that actually it was a uh, it was an intention that didn't come to fruition. Yaakov, Avinu, gathered them to tell them about the Mashiach. But in that moment, the Shekhinah, his prophecy, his ability to look into the future, departed. It left him. So therefore, Hidkhil Omer, he started saying, Dvarim, other things so that might be a simple straightforward answer the Torah says he started saying prophecy what was going to happen that's a simple understanding unfortunately at that moment he could no longer see into the future he could no longer talk to them about the Mashiach so what did he do? instead he gave them berachot that's why at the end it classifies what just happened guys this is the story of the children of Israel getting their berachot however I don't know, that kind of seems to me to be a little bit weird and a little bit underwhelming, doesn't it? Yaakov starts with this, gets taken away, so he switches plans. You know what I would do if I was a prophet? All my kids are around. I'm like, guys, I'm about to tell you who's going to win the World Series. All of a sudden, nevuah shuts off. I can't see who's going to win the World Series. What am I going to tell them? They're all sitting around the bed. Oh, guys, uh, here's a nice song I want to teach you. Tell them, guys, I can't. I can't see the future anymore. (laughs) Come back tonight. Right? Or maybe he should have told them, someone go get some musical instruments. We know that some Nevi'im, if they were in an, they needed to be in a state of joy to be able to give nivuah. So maybe he should have told them, someone, you know, grab a violin. But instead he just shifts tack. So I thought of a big chidush, and I want to share this with you today. Yaakov Avinu wants to tell them when Mashiach is going to come. He can't. Why can't he? Because God knows if you tell the Jewish people that Mashiach is going to come in 4,000 years, they'll give up hope. We've managed to survive because we don't say Mashiach is going to come in 4,000 years. We say, I believe in the coming of the Mashiach, even though he tarries and he takes longer than I want, I'll wait for him Bechol Yom sheyavo, I wait for him every day If I think Mashiach can come today I can survive till tomorrow If I think Mashiach is coming in 4,000 years What am I going to do? I'm going to change my name to Ryan Move to some some city in Texas And hope no one starts picking on me for being a Jew I don't need the story of anti-Semitism I can't last 4,000 years So God takes the ability for Yaakov to prophesy away What does Yaakov do? When he can't tell them when Mashiach is going to come, he shifts gears and tells them how Mashiach is going to come. He shifts gears and explains to the Jewish people, don't think that any one of you has a monopoly on the right way to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Each one of you, my 12 sons, you were created differently. Some of you have incredibly positive attributes. And your mission in this world, should you choose to accept it, is to perfect your character and to do great things in the world. Some of you were born with an element of darkness within you, an anger issue, so to speak, something which is impetuous and impatience. Your job is to work on that negative character trait and turn it around. So if Yaakov could not tell them when Mashiach was going to come, Yaakov told them how Mashiach is going to come. Number one, that each person fulfills their mission in this world as is understood by a self-analysis of the nature of their own humanity. Who are they? How are they? How are they in good times? How are they in bad times? How are they when it comes to good to challenges in their life? Are they honest? Are they compassionate? Are they full of chesed? And second, could they learn to accept every different type of Jew and think that this person is also a son of the very same father of Yaakov Avinu. Kol <laughs> ele, all of these says the pasuk in summation, Ashibte Israel are the tribes of Israel, and their father. Vezot ashe b'irachotam Avihem, and this is how their father blessed them, each person according to his beracha. A deeper understanding of that pasuk is not that Yaakov Avinu blessed them. But zot asher berach otam avihem. This is how their Father in Heaven blessed them. Each one according to their blessing. You look at this person, you ask him, how come his service of God doesn't look like yours? How come he's not as strict on praying as you are? How come he doesn't learn as much Torah as you do? There's other things that he might do based on the root, on the style, on the uh, uh, feelings of his own internal neshama. All of these are the tribes of Israel. And this is his bracha from, that, from his father in heaven. Each person according to the way that they, that he or she was blessed. My friends, this idea would ultimately become the only thing that stands between us and the Mashiach. Us fulfilling a personal mission based on an acceptance of someone that is different than us. The exact opposite of Sinat Chinam which keeps Mashiach and has kept Mashiach at arm's length since the beginning of time. (sighs) If that's the case, then I think we understand something very powerful about what this day can mean uh, in 2021. What is stopping the Jewish people from their lifeblood? In the story of a siege, it's someone stopping Food from reaching the, uh, the the people inside. That's this. That's the tragedy. That's the way you choke them off. What is the food, the lifeline of the Jewish people, so we can understand that if someone's stepping on that oxygen tube and cutting off our life supply of food, of nourishment, we can figure out how to free up that line, or how to get that line into the city another way. And I I wonder to myself sometimes, as a rabbi, when I look at parts of Am Yisrael that maybe are not getting, they're not understanding Judaism. They have a very negative feeling towards Judaism. That means that the lifeblood, the excitement, the neshama of Torah and mitzvot, someone's crimping the tube. Now, once upon a time, that person was called Nebuchadnezzar. But who is it now? Is it a political force? Is it an ideological force? Is it, is it a technological source? Is it media? You see? In every generation, there stands a possible Messiah, our rabbis tell us. And if we, are, if we merit... He's right around the corner. He's ready, willing, and able to appear. But you know what I feel like they don't tell us? If in every generation there's a Messiah, then in every generation there's a Nevuchadnezzar. If in every generation there's a Mordechai, in every generation there's a Haman. If every generation has a Moses, a Moshe, every generation has a Paro. What is the Nebuchadnezzar of the Jewish people today? What is my Nebuchadnezzar? So I want to give you the model of this, and like I said, we'll end with this, and then we'll say Kaddish. I want to think in my own personal life, and this might be different for everybody. I would like to learn more, to have more time to learn Torah. As a rabbi, right? what happens? You get taken up with a million and one different things. I believe in my life, uh, as a person who's being mashpia, who's trying to teach Torah, you have to take in Torah to give out Torah. So what steps on, what hampers or hinders the lifeblood of Judaism in my world, right now in my world, is being able to learn, to study, to be connected to the source of wisdom, of morality, of ethics of the Torah to a greater level, to a level larger than the time that I have in my day. The way to defeat my Nebuchadnezzar is to be very careful about the time management, the way I spend my day, what I spend it on, figuring out how to to delegate so that I can put something like that back into my calendar. For someone else, it might not be that. It might be anger. They might be angry at their religious parents. They might have had a bad experience in a Jewish high school. So for that person, it's not about time management. It's about revisiting that pain, that suffering, that anger, that uh, bitterness, and figuring out how to uproot it. These are the thoughts that are supposed to go through a person's head on these days. Figuring out how to undo the tragedy, reverse the trend, and get back to where we were before there was such a thing as Tzom Harivii, And then indeed the words of the Navi will come to fruition in our day when Tzom Harivii, Tzom HaHamishi, Tzom HaShivi'i and Tzom HaAsiri will become days of Yom Tov. You know why? Not because God will have blessed us with the fact that they are Yom Tov, but because we will have turned them into days of celebration, days that were catalysts for tremendous growth. Through the process of introspection, afforded to each one of us by the specific natures of the day uh, that we commemorate with such sadness and fasting. Stop thinking it's about the food. It's not. That just sets the table for an introspective mindset, as the Mishnah Berurah says, so that we could think in a more proper, constructive way so that we never have to come back to these days again. May HaKadosh Baruch bless us to witness and experience the coming of Mashiach Mehera. amenu amen. amen, amen.